0: This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Hello. Very nice to see you. Sunshine is with us today. My name is Lenny Goodings and I've got the extremely nice job of um, talking to Mark Haddon. First thing I need to say is um, if you can remember to turn your phones off, that'd be good. Um, and secondly, to thank the Hawthornden Literary Retreat for sponsoring today. So, Mark Haddon is author, as you know, illustrator, you may not know, screenwriter. He's won two BAFTAs, 15 books for children. He's a bestseller, most particularly for The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, um, which has won 17 prizes, sold 10 million copies. Good, that's what I feel too, (laughs) astonished. Um, Also poetry, Spot of Bother and Recent Novel, and The Red House. So we have the Renaissance, do you play the piano as well? (laughs) Uh, We have the Renaissance man here, at least in literature, and he lives in Oxford. Um, Today, though, we are here to celebrate his new collection of short stories, The Pier Falls, which is very handsomely produced like this. Um, So, I really love these stories, actually. We've been talking in the green room before we came, but I didn't tell him, I didn't give him any compliments yet. So I just (laughs) want to tell you, I thought they were wonderful, really special, impressive, and you know, it's a difficult form. So, what I want to do today, I'm going to talk to Mark mainly about the Pier Falls. You can ask him whatever you want when it comes to um, question time. Um, But the one thing I think we need to just get right up front, is that these are very dark stories, Mark. Nine very dark stories.
2: Eight very dark stories. OK, fine. My, when I finished writing the first eight, uh, my wife, sauce who is, gives me great advice, and is a brilliant editor as well, she said, I think the subtitle ought to be, Everyone Dies.
1: <laughs> She'd be right.
2: So um, she said, could you just write one more in which no one dies? So that the final story, no one dies. Okay, a couple of dogs die, but the human <laughs> beings are alive.
1: By that time you're incredibly grateful, <laughs> But, um, so why? Tell us why. Why are they so dark?
2: Do you know, I've been asked this question several times before, and my answer is, and it still feels right, that death is at the root of everything. Death is what makes everything about life valuable. The fact it comes to an end, that we love people partly because we know we're gonna lose them, we know that we'll grow ill and frail and that nothing lasts forever and we can only do a fraction of the things we want to do. And underneath all those, all that finitude, the biggest finitude is death, isn't it? And it's death that creates stories, because death makes an end to things. Except I was saying that at an event recently with a young writer, a young, really good writer who also lives in Oxford, Daisy Johnson, just written her first collection of short stories called Fen, which is set in the Fenland. It's very sort of squelchy and moist and dark and sexual. And as I gave that answer to why there was so much death in it, I just realised that... This doesn't apply to you, Daisy. That's why sex is in all your stories. Because when you're 21, you think sex is underneath everything else. But give her another 30 years and it'll...
1: So it's not... I mean, it is about death. There's no doubt about that. That some of them hang on the edge of of death. But there's a sort of dark undertone, too. So are you saying that it's because we're foretelling that? Do
2: you know, I think it's it's something much more practical than that. We'll, We'll probably go on to talk about how I came to write short mm. stories and what I try to do in them. I want stuff to happen, mm. and in a way the biggest thing that happens is death, isn't mm. it? If you, want, if you want a beginning and a middle and an end in such a short space, you have to deal with difficult things, and if you're going to bring a story to a close and make it a big story, well, death's at, at the end of most big stories.
1: The, they are. F- Good to read as well, though. Let me just tell you, it's not that. Although you read there
2: was with, there was one review one review on Goodreads which said, um, "Reading this is like taking very good bad drugs." <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so I leave that one with you. Um, I want to know though, when we were talking by email beforehand, um, one of the things that you said which quite struck me is that at least two of these stories are kind of quite fictional versions of your life, which I was very struck by. Um, the particular one that you s- said. This is the one I really like. Let's <laughs> see, and I've been struggling. Wad wo. Wad wo, Yeah. Yeah. Wad wo. It's called wad wo, which means wild man.
2: N- more like sort of serpent or dragon. It's a quote from Gawain and the Green Knight. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I'd like you to tell us a bit about that, but also how it relates to you, to your life. So first, tell tell people what the story is about generally.
2: I love the story of Gawain and the Green Knight. Loved it for many, many years. Always wanted to write some form of contemporary version. Never quite worked out how to do it. I finally sort of worked out how to mm, do it. You definitely have. It starts out in a kind of north, a Northamptonshire sandstone cottage where a middle-class family are sort of gathering for Christmas. It's not actually my story. I've never had a stranger with a saw off shotgun come into my dining room at all. But... It is my parents' dining room. It is my parents' house. One of the problems I have as a writer is that I love detail and I love stuff. I like getting microscopically into people's lives. But there are some weirdnesses in my life, but what it says on the tin is straight, white, middle-aged male from Middle England. So the stuff of those lives is the stuff of the people who have occupied too much of the spotlight for too long. And when I read another one of those, should we call them Bowdoin novels? My heart sinks a little bit, and I really don't want to write one. But I discovered I can write about that milieu if someone with a sawn off shotgun comes in and performs the most appalling thing to that mm. dining room and the people in it. Mm. And the strange thing is, if you do appalling things to those people in those kind of places, you still have to treat them with the same loving attention to detail. So I'm allowed to talk about... The hand-coloured maps of the county and those brass bedpans that people have on their walls and the knickknacks, and the, you know, the whole business of it. Um, so that's how it came about. I just, I, I took away in the green light and I just, I stuck my parents' house in it. How did they feel? Um... <laughs> My mother hasn't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. I could be in trouble.
1: Christmas. It's all set on the on a Christmas, the eve of Christmas, and there's some great things at the beginning too. So you know, one, they're all grown-up children. They're coming back for Christmas, and one sits in the car saying, "Oh, you know, if only I could just stay in the car all night." And, you know, kind of, and inside there's kind of, um, you know, the, every as we all know, when you go back to your childhood home, you become your childhood self again. So all the sort of fam- familial sibling relationships start playing out again don't they
2: but what i really enjoyed about it was that you think it's you think it's a sort of satire on middle Mm. class life Mm -hmm. and then this stranger comes Mm. in and as in gawain if you know the original story in the original story on christmas eve a tall green man on a green horse comes in and says who'll play a game with me who will chop off my head with an axe and then he can come and visit me next christmas Mm. and i'll chop off his head with an axe and gawain says I can see the floor in that, I'll have a go. <laughs> Chops his head off, the stranger picks up his head, walks away and says, I'll see you next Christmas. Yeah. And what interests me, what interests me a lot of uh, medieval or Arthurian or classical stories is the, the holes in those stories. I'm often saying to myself, what would that story be like if it was real, if I really was one of those mm. people? Mm. But I'm also interested in the things that are not spoken of. Um, the island uh, at the beginning of the collection is about Ariadne on Naxos. Uh, In the myth, she's left on Naxos to die by Theseus, but she's also left on the island to die by the story. She's Mm. just left behind. Mm. You don't know what happens to her, like a lot of women in these mythical stories. So I thought I want to write about what happens to her when she's left behind. In Gawain, there's this odd gap in the middle of the story where it goes from one Christmas to the the other, meeting the Green Knight and then meeting the Green Knight again. And there's Mm. only maybe two or three fits, they're called, uh, long stanzas in the poem, which deal with that year. And I thought that hole in the story is, in fact, mm. one of the most interesting parts. What do you do if you start out in this nice middle-class setting, but you pick up a shotgun and you shoot a stranger in the chest and that you know they're dead, and then they get up and walk away and they say, I'll see you next Christmas. What happens to your mind over that year? And that struck me as really mm. interesting.
1: And you do really... I mean, aside from, uh, as I said, the sort of what happens within the family, I think that central character, Gavin, Mm -hmm. who's who's the fellow who picks up the shotgun, um, you do some really interesting things with him in terms of this is a guy at the sort of height of his powers. He's kind of quite arrogant, it has to be said. And you show him just unable to deal with.
2: I think there are two things going on there. One is that I was the first person in my family ever to get sent away to school. My father was unexpectedly quite successful in business so he thought he'd send me away to a boarding school. That's a whole other story. This, this particular story gave me a chance to take some of those people I know quite well, because I was at school with them, they're all running BP now and they're MPs, and do the most dreadful thing to them. Actually, <laughs> OK, I
1: never f- mind death, this is all about revenge. I thought,
2: <laughs> let's, let's, let's do something so they end up homeless and destitute and suicidal immensely good fun. Um, More seriously, I'm really interested in downward mobility. Mm. We have this myth, we all know about the upwardly mobile people, but there are so many of them that everyone would would have risen all the time. We know the kind of average stays the same, so we know that quietly in the background, Lots of people are slipping away for Mm. one reason or another. They're losing jobs, they're losing families, and it happens because of alcohol or drugs or divorce or unemployment or mental health issues. And I'm really interested in those people who are just letting go Mm. and being left behind and not being talked about. So on the one hand, it was kind of childish fun, but on the other hand, it was was quite serious. Yeah, no, it
1: is. I thought it was good, a sort of dismantling of his manhood in some ways, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So, um, speaking of dismantling, one of the, the key um, story that starts this is called The Pier Falls, which is an amazing story where we watch, almost the way we watch The Twin Towers. I was thinking it was like that sort of thing, when you watch The Twin Towers fall just from afar. And so what Mark's done is he just, he stands back and we just see this kind of utter collapse, devastation, death, but it's all come from this the powerful c- power comes from the way it's you know, just looked from afar and has a coolness and an unemotional eye, like, almost like a camera or something. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, but I thought, you know, it's obviously a metaphor for s- some of the things you were just talking about now, too, about what happens when life goes wrong and there's this sort of domino effect. You know, one thing happens, you can imagine, as a pier falls. But th- wh- I, the one thing I thought, um, it could be called <laughs> when things pop, fall apart, mm. almost couldn't it? But it's not just a metaphor, it seems to me, because it's also about the physicality of that, of that pier. And I know you're an architect's son, and I'm an engineer's daughter. And when I read the word, you know, that the, the rivet had, um, they had all started from one final faulty rivet. So that there are only two rivets holding the tonnage previously supported by eight. The engineer's daughter thought oh this is a human made tragedy this <laughs> did not have to happen somehow you know they sh- it's not terrorism it's not acts of nature it's bad engineering you know, somebody's not taking care yeah. of it um but you're very interested in the physicality aren't you in your in your stories I this think.
2: story started from a, s- a sort of similar place to what as well when we were kids my sister and i most summers we would go to brighton with my our paternal grandparents, for a proper old working-class holiday with fish and chips and bread and butter and ride on the steam train to Hove and shove hapenny on the pier and bumper cars and candy floss. And I had tried to write about it for a really long time. The problem was that my memory's not brilliant. There were always gaps. I thought, I can't quite get it right. And there was also a kind of... It was too respectful. It was too nice. It was rather fey because I was trying to sort of treat it properly with the respect it deserved. And then I had the same revelation that I had with Wadwo, that if instead of trying to bring it back wholly to life, you actually, <laughs> you actually destroyed That's it, way, yeah. it didn't matter that there were gaps. I realised, I tell you what I realised, I realised it was my life, and that it doesn't matter to anyone else whether I get it right or not. It's mm. my material. I can, mm. I'm free to do what I want with it. And that was quite a release. Um, so again, it's another bit of my childhood which I've just torn to pieces.
1: But how did you choose to do that sort of, as I said, that kind of almost filmic sort of, you know, it, is, I, it is utterly unemotional and yet it's really powerful.
2: Do you know, I think I learnt something um, that all writers have to learn, but I learnt it very strongly with Curious Incident, that you, if you leave out the emotion readers put it in, mm. If you, ma- if you make a world, and you make it properly, and you make it whole, and you make it believable, it comes, it, it, it rises inside someone's mind, and they decide what they're going to think about it, and what they're going to feel about it. And the less you tell them what to feel about anything, the more freedom they have to feel mm. what they want to feel. And if two people go away and feel completely opposite things about the same story, that, that seems to me a victory.
1: Because we, we were talking earlier about um, the relationship of the author to the, to the reader. I mean, I'm sure you've had that conversation many times here. But, you know, the, Mark made the very, I think, that nice observation that the, a book is not a book until it is read. And it's not a book until it's read by a stranger. I thought yeah. that was especially interesting. Well,
2: I teach for the Arvon Foundation at least once a year. And almost everyone who starts to write, particularly on those courses or elsewhere, they think it's about getting the stuff from up here and in there onto the paper. And if they get it correctly onto the paper and it seems right to them, they think it's a success. And it is to start with. But if you want to publish something, if you want other people to read it, the reader doesn't give a damn about what's in here and what's up there. They only care what's on the paper. Mm, And
1: what's in there for them, you
2: mean? Yeah, and and what happens to them when they read it. So Mm. in a way, you've got to sort of make yourself small and cut yourself away from it, and that's part of the same process of taking away your feelings about the story and just giving them the story, just giving them the people, just giving them Mm. the place.
1: And let their imagination. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Speaking of physicality, which I am, I really do notice a lot in your thing, I I know you're going to read us a tiny bit from something called Bunny.
2: I think this needs no introduction, because it's self-explanatory. So this is the opening of a story called Bunny. He loved Mars bars and Kit Kats. He loved double-deckers and galaxy caramels and Yorkies. He loved Reese's Pieces and Cadbury's cream eggs. He could eat a whole box of Quality Street in one sitting and had done so on several occasions, perhaps more than several. He loved white chocolate. He was not particularly keen on Maltesers, Whispers and Crunches, which were airy and insubstantial, though he wouldn't turn his nose up at any of them if they were on offer. He disliked boiled and gummy sweets. He loved chocolate digestives. He loved Oreos and chocolate bourbons. He loved coconut macaroons and Scottish shortbread. He would never buy a cereal bar, but a moist, chunky flapjack was one of the most irresistible foods on the planet. He loved thick, sweet custard. He loved Frosties and Weetabix with several dessert spoons of sugar. He loved chunks of cheese broken from a block in the fridge. Red Leicester preferably, or cheap rubbery mozzarella. He loved Yazoo banana milk, the stuff you got from garages and service stations in squat plastic bottles with foil seals under chunky screw tops. He could eat a lit- litre tub of yoghurt if he added brown sugar or maple syrup. He loved hot dogs and burgers, especially with tomato ketchup and a soft white bun thickly spread with butter. He loved battered cotton chips with salt and no vinegar. He loved roast chicken. He loved bacon. He loved steak. He loved every flavor of ice cream he had ever sampled. Rum and raisin, dime bar crunch, peanut butter, tiramisu. At least he used to love these things. His eating was now largely mechanical and joyless. It was the sugar and the fat he needed, though it gave him little pleasure. More often than not, it made the cravings worse. He hated people using the phrase comfort eating. He had not been comfortable for a very long time, except sometimes in dreams where he ran and swam and from which he occasionally woke up weeping. He was 28 years old and weighed 37 stone. There was a creased and sun-bleached photograph of him at nine, standing in the corridor outside the Burnside flat, wearing his new uniform for the first day at St. Jude's. His mother had run back inside at the last minute to get the camera, as if she'd feared he might not be coming home again and had wanted a memento or a picture to give to the police. He'd been wearing grey flannel shorts and a sky-blue air shirt. He could still smell the damp, fungal carpet and hear the coo and clatter of the pigeons on the window ledge. He remembered how overweight he felt even then. Whenever he looked at the photo, however, his first thought... Was what a beautiful boy he had been. So he stopped looking at the photo. He dared not tear it up for fear of invoking some terrible voodoo. Instead, he asked one of his care assistants to put it on top of a cupboard where he couldn't reach it. It's
1: sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice. I think um, that obviously is sad, and you can hear that one's going to start to go somewhere very bad. But I actually think that story is also about kindness.
2: Yes, (laughs) it's very hard to talk about this without giving the end away. No, no, don't do that. But Um, it's about. I tell you how. Should I say instead how the story came about? Yes. Usually when people are asked where a novel came from, where a short story came from, they're expecting the answer that came from my uncle who said this or is this event or that other book. A single thing, because they like the idea of a a story growing like a river or an acorn Mm -hmm. or a baby from one single thing which gets bigger. For me, the experience is usually completely opposite. I seem to travel the world with a great rag and bone cart, which I just stuff everything in, and I sort of take it home and I sort through it and I throw away the rubbish and I squeeze and compress and polish and edit and edit and edit. So that there are a hundred sources for every story. This is almost the only thing I've ever read that came from one place. I was watching a documentary on Channel 4 about a very morbidly obese young man. It was both fascinating and sad, but he couldn't leave the house uh, unless he was in a wheelchair. So someone was obviously feeding him, Mm. but they were missing from the documentary. Mm. And I thought, what a grimly interesting relationship that would be. Who is the person who is, in effect, keeping him in that state? What do they call it? Do they call it love? Do they call it caring? Even though it's slowly killing him? And it was that relationship which I thought was Mm. fascinating.
1: It is. We're not gonna tell you the end on that one. Sorry. It's about
2: love. But
1: I think it's about love. We, we don't entirely agree on that story, <laughs> actually. Um, one thing I think, actually, it's interesting that you've made Bunny um, a man in that story because he easily could have been um, mm. a woman, but I thought in all your novels um, and in the short stories so that you're actually, you, are, you write very well about women, I think. Um, but I also think as a woman reader and as a mother of a son, I thought you were really, what, what I find especially interesting is the men and boys. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the stories is called The Gun, for example, and it's about two young boys who get hold of something they shouldn't and do something they shouldn't. But also um, another one called The Boys Who Left Home to Fear. It was even interesting you called them boys yeah. at that point. And um, in, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people here have read The uh, Red House. Where, where Alex is a young boy who's 17 and he ends up fixing the broken washing machine while his hopeless father watches a, and is incapable of doing it. And I just thought, it's, you're, you're very interesting in what in testing men, I suppose.
2: It was strange, that Red House thing. There's lots of characters in the Red House. And um, Alex is a very typical teenage boy. He's quite sporting, but he likes sort of computer games, going for a run and masturbation. And that's about the whole thing. But readers seem to love him. It's almost because of his faults. Mm. I've I found this: the more the more likable you make characters, the less the less readers like them. I think of it as it's like the sort of Macbeth slash um, Basil faulty principle. We love people to be flawed. It somehow makes mm. them real, and it gives them gives us some access to them. We can we can somehow be kind to them in our heads. When it comes to gender, I. T- I don't even think about it, really. Mm, I'm, I do very consciously make sure I write about female characters. And there's one story which just has three women in it. Um, so I don't write about men all the time. But I've always felt this about whether it's Christopher and Curious Incident, whether it's the two teenage girls in the red house, one of whom is a, an evangelical Christian who's coping with her sexuality, the other one who's, frankly, a bit of a bitch, mm. with sort of slow-motion hair shampoo, advert hair. Everyone is very, very similar underneath. Everyone has a very, very similar set of needs and desires for, you know, for safety, for love, for comfort, for some kind of meaning in their lives. What makes people different is the way in which they try to get that from the world around them. So I always try and get myself to that core of a person. It's, it's relatively easy if you like the person because you, you feel similar to them. You think, oh, they're like me. I understand that situation. It's much harder when mm. someone is either very different from you in their whatever, gender, class, the country they live in, but particularly if the person is unpleasant. Mm. And I often t- talk to students and I say, try and do this. Try and think of someone you really dislike and then try and understand that somewhere in the middle there is a person just like you who has somehow utterly failed to understand how to interact with the world around them in a positive, helpful way. How has it all gone so wrong for that for that little child who wasn't that different from you?
1: So, I mean, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about whether we have to like our characters, especially the main characters mm-hmm. in, a, in a novel I'm talking about now, or even in the short stories, too. Um, which I must say, I, I don't. I agree. I mean, I think actually so long as it, they've got to be credible, that's the main thing, whether you like them or not, is, is not. Yeah. But that is a, a feeling, isn't it? That people need to like the people.
2: Except you don't really do. My son is going through this at the moment. He watched all of Game of Thrones. Then he started watching House of Cards. He said, wow, this is like Game of Thrones, but it's sophisticated, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, what I like about the main character is that you don't know whether you're allowed to like him mm. or not. And it makes me uncomfortable. Mm.
1: But I think that's, you know, if you have a sort of big evil character, that's true. But uh, what I'm talking about is sort of more low-level, you know, ordinary people who are,
2: mm, you
1: know, not particularly likeable. But they're...
2: You have to be likeable and unlikable. I mean, who's the person who's completely likeable? Exactly. Or likeable in all contexts? Mm. And, of course, if you're writing a novel, you don't... (laughs) Was it Henri de Montalant who said, happiness writes white... Mm. Uh, so if you've got happy people nothing happens on the paper (laughs) even if you've got fiction is about flawed people doing bad things even if you've got someone you fundamentally like you have to gird your loins and put them into some unpleasant situation where they might crack or you don't have a story to tell
1: Mm. and do you feel bad about doing that to them Never. (laughs) I knew the answer to that question. It's
2: it's strange, isn't it? If if a book works, people think it's real. I mean, this this sounds so crass. It's it's hardly worth saying, but people do this. Um, People ask what happened to the characters Mm. after the end of the Mm. book. And it's hugely flattering because they were totally taken. They believed in this world. And you do have to say, (laughs) it's only a book. Mm. I have no idea what happens because they just words on the page. But
1: don't you think of them afterwards too? No, not at all. Really? Really? As not you at all. shut the book, that's
2: it. It's because I sometimes think of writing fiction as like running a punch and Judy show on the beach. If you're sitting on the sand and uh, and looking at the show, you can see the characters you can see the characters interacting with each other. You can see a story that has meaning and you can imagine the whole rest of their lives. But actually as the writer you're in the dark in that little tent moving the sticks and pulling the strings. Mm. And to make it work, you have to learn that odd grammar of stick and string pulling. Mm. And some t- I, quite, I know how to do certain things on paper and how to make readers react in a certain way without ever having to put myself in the mind of that reader. I just know that certain things mm. work. I know that it's, it's, it's really good to try and make something sad happen after something funny's happened, for example. Mm. I don't think, I'm the reader, now something sad has to happen. I th- I, it's a little bit manipulative, but I know how to do it.
1: But, uh, but I'm really interested that you don't, you know, wonder what happened to the next, or that's really... So is that shocking? It is a bit, (laughs) (laughs) but that's okay. (laughs) So what I want to talk about is, particularly with these um, short stories, is short. So this is the first time you've done short stories.
2: I've been trying to write them for a long time, and I was writing them for the the crassest reason, really. I, you know, I knew I could write radio plays, I knew I could write a novel, I knew I could write for TV. Ah,
1: the Renaissance man.
2: Or, as my (laughs) wife said, jack of all trades, darling. And it struck me as a puzzle. I kept thinking, why can't I write short stories? It's just one word after another, after another, after another. How can it be so different? It took me a long time to realize that I was trying to write the short stories of the kind that I was reading. And I eventually admitted to myself that I didn't really like the short stories that I was reading. And those short stories were largely stories in that... Chekhov, Mansfield, Joyce, Carver Mode. Mm. We all know them because it's the kind of the orthodox kind of story in British and American literature at the moment. They're fairly modest, they're usually melancholic.
1: Spare.
2: Spare. They're about turning points as opposed to huge stories. They're almost often like a bit of a story, the rest of which lies outside the frame. They're often about things that don't happen and people that are absent. And I realized that I, I wasn't enjoying them because I felt something was missing. And a small group of stories turned me around because I realised what could be done. Uh, the easiest one to talk about is called Everything Ravished, Everything Burned by Wells Tower, American writer. Great collection of the same name. I think nine of the stories are examples of what we might call modern American man in trouble. We all know those stories. It usually involves alcohol, family breakdown, lots of drifting. They were great, but they were within that definition. The final story came about... So it is said, because someone said to Wells Tower, what would happen if Raymond Carver wrote about Vikings? So he sat down, he produced a story which is very, very unlike anything Raymond Carver would have written. It's about these two middle-aged Vikings who are really looking forward to finding a woman, settling down, (laughs) doing a bit of vegetable gardening, and sitting on the side of the field drinking potato wine as the sun goes down, but... Hraf, the psychopathic leader of their village, decides they have to go on one final raping and pillaging uh, expedition to Northumberland. They feel under pressure to go, so they they sign up and they row off across the North Sea. Um, And it gets horribly darker and darker as it goes. It's strange and it becomes darker and it becomes very sad. A bishop is spread-eagled, several of the villagers are hung. The protagonist's friend forms a relationship with a young girl who lost an arm during a previous raid, and she decides to come back with him to Norway. You never quite know whether she's in love with him or whether she's choosing the least worst option that's available to her. They go home, the protagonist has lost his friend because his friend now has a partner and he's drinking the potato wine, but the protagonist is on his own. And it ends with him falling asleep, feeling desperately lonely, and listening for that distant splash of oars, which signifies that someone is coming to do to them what they've done mm. to other people. It felt like a whole novel in 20 pages. Mm. And I read it and I thought, yeah, you're allowed to be exciting in a short story. So often short stories can feel like five finger exercises, can't they? I thought, you can be exciting, you can be entertaining, and you can tell a whole story. So instead of doing a short story, you have to write a story that's shortened. And I think that unlocked it for me.
1: But I think, it's, I think that is true, and you've certainly done all that. In fact, I know you have somewhere, you've got a quote saying you don't have to write small you know, to, yeah, to write short. Yeah. Um, but one other thing about the short story, it seems to me, is that th- there's th- you know, they have to be visceral in a, s- in a way, don't yeah. they? They're kind of... I was thinking they're almost like a joke in a funny way. I don't mean because they're f- funny, but more because they, they're visceral, like a punch, and you, know, you get something mm-hmm. at the end, don't you? So it's a lot about effect, isn't it, in a quite a short space of time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And they are, I'll go on then, um, they are notoriously hard to write. I mean, interestingly, um, I, d- I found a lovely quote, I'm sure you know this one, this Thoreau, who says, not that the story need be long, but it will take a long while to make it short. That's and true, think, isn't it? And I think, you know, that a lot of people talk about, it, I mean, in fact, if you look up, you know, it takes a long time to write a short story, you get about 10 people claiming that, from Mark Twain to Cicero. Um, claiming you know it's you can write long it's easier to write long than it is to write short and it takes a longer time to write short.
2: But there is, there is a myth around, isn't there? You hear a lot of writers talking about short stories as if they're this very subtle, sensitive, entirely different species of writing that mm. requires a very different skill. And I just, I just don't believe it. Page by page, what thrills us and entertains us is. It's pretty much the same, however, however long it's going to go on. I mean, I think there's a gap, not because the, the skills needed are hugely different, but because you can't, you can't, sell, a, you can't sell a novella very easily. Mm. There's a market of a kind for short stories, and there's a market for novels. But you, no one sits down to write something in the middle because you finish, and you don't really know what to do with it. The, the book is too thin.
1: So and that is really interesting, because, you know, as I say, when I've been thinking a lot about short stories uh, in order to come and chat to you. And, you know, what I read is, aside from, you know, it's difficult to write short, I think the, that, um, that it's all about a sort of snapshot. You know, William Boyd said, um, when they work well, they're, we're given the rare chance to see in them more than in real life. You know, mm-hmm. there's a kind of, I mean, maybe you're absolutely right that maybe actually people are making too much fuss that is not so... Well, actually, but, but people do make a big fuss about writing
2: short stories. They do, don't they? But the way we're talking about this makes it, sound as if I sat down to write lots of short stories, whereas they all came about by an incredibly dog-legging route. Mm. I mean, one of them started off as a long narrative poem. I mean, why should anyone write a long narrative poem? I don't know. It was ridiculous, it didn't work, and I finally realised I could write a short story. Three of them started out as plays, yes, that's which, w- which weren't working. Tell and us I a bit about that. Long answer? Okay. I have written a play for the Donmar Warehouse years ago. It's a great experience. I loved it. I loved, I loved working with the director, I loved working with actors. I loved just getting out of the house, which is quite exciting for a novelist. <laughs> um, and when Curious was on stage, I had a little taste of that world again. and I really wanted to be involved in theatre, so I spent a, a year trying to write plays which just were not working. I mean, again, it's a bad reason to write plays. It has to be necessary to write anything. You can't write mm. it because you just want to be in that world. At the end of that year, feeling very despondent, it just happens that Simon Stevens, who wrote the adaptation for the stage of Curious Incident*, and I, flew to Copenhagen to watch the Danish opening of the play, which is a translation of his text. Very, very odd experience. Neither of us speak Danish. Um, (laughs) I knew the story quite well, so I knew what was going on. Um, He uh, knows every word, so it was like he understood Danish. He sat there going, ha, ha, (laughs) yes. For me, um, it was like having a stroke in which everything was the same around me, but I just lost the ability to understand any words. The only three words I understood the whole play were shit, fucking Didcot Parkway. (laughs) The following morning, we had to fly back, and we were sitting in Starbucks at the airport, and it was the first time that I talked to Simon about failing to write plays. And he said, look, just give me some of the plots. Just tell me. And I went through about 20 plots. Two sentences in, he kept saying, that's not going to work. No, that won't work either. No, non-starter. It was was a a difficult conversation. I really respect his work. On the plane on the way home, he gave me a very condensed sort of theatre workshop talk. Mm. He talked about lots of things, but the main thing that stayed with me ever since is this. He said you can write a 3,000-page novel about things happening to people, Mm. Um, and spruced. You know, it doesn't matter that stuff happens to people in a novel. The protagonist can be entirely passive. On stage, Mm. all the main characters have to want to do something, have to want something to happen, Mm. even if they don't realize it. They come on stage and drama is created because this person wants something to happen and this person wants a different thing to happen and there's conflict. Mm. Similarly, he said, a poem, a short story, a novel is a finished work. He said, you have to think of a play as a football match you don't know which team is going to win. Mm. And if there's none of that tension about who's going to win, it just goes completely flat in the theatre. And I realized in that moment that I tend to write about things happening to people, mm. which is why I couldn't write yeah. plays. Mm. But the ironic footnote to that is that one of the stories in here is about some colonists in a space station on Mars who lose touch with the planet Earth and things go downhill. One of Simon's friends wrote a play called X, Alistair McDowell, about colonists on Pluto who lose touch with Earth and everything goes horribly downhill. And it was one of the biggest successes at the Royal Court last year.
1: <laughs> I'm sure point it's, this out.
2: Um, it's purely accidental, but Simon feels quite bad about it. And I've got a lot of leverage now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Are we going to see more plays from you, do you think?
2: More play, No, you'll see more short stories, but not plays. Mm. I realise I can't really do plays. Mm. Uh, he said something else which is very interesting. He said... You have to understand why playwright is spelled W R I G H T, because it's not about the writing. It's playwright as in cartwright or wheelwright. Yeah. He said, I make something for other people to use. Interesting. Um, I have to leave space. I'm part of a team. I'm just doing the words, and I know someone else who can do all mm. the other aspects about it. When I first read his final draft for Curious on Stage, I felt uneasy and slightly disappointed. It felt thin. I didn't say so at the time. And it took me a a while to realise that Mm. because he is a good playwright, what he does is he leaves holes Mm. in exactly the right place where other people can fill them. He knew that Frantic Assembly wanted to do the movement, and he knew Marion Elliott, the director, and he knew what those people could do, so he generously gave them space to do it. And I can't do that. I run a little benign fascist state here. <laughs> I'm in charge of every bit of punctuation. And I, I confess I like it that way. I'm not, I'm not really a team player.
1: But I'll tell you one thing you are, is you're a big um, communicator, and you're big on Twitter, and you, he writes a really interesting blog on his website, which is kind of really engaging in the world. Um, so even though you say you're, sort of, you're running your little tyranny at home, and you're just mainly at home and not coming out, I don't... I feel... Hmm, I feel that's not exactly true.
2: You have to be interested in the world. You, have to be, you can't be a writer without being passionately interested in some aspect of the world, whether, whether it's the natural world, whether it's, whether it's birds and wild animals, or whether it's another culture, or whether it's history, or whether it's just the people around you at this very moment. And I am, I'm, I'm passionately interested in that.
1: And do you think it's um, something, you know, we, we're watching now with the elections in America, you know, some film stars are coming out and writers are coming out, you know, sort of saying one thing. I mean, do you think that's a writer's role?
2: It's a human being's role, if you want to take it. I think it's a really... You have to be really careful that it doesn't infect your writing. I mm. mean, um, I've been in, involved with lots of groups. I do lots of work for Oxfam. I, I visit prisons quite often. What it does for... I, but I can't put that directly into fiction, or it will just go... It will, it will go dead, completely. Because... I think it was Keats who said, we hate poetry that has a palpable design upon us. We all know those novels that want us to feel a certain Mm. way or to agree with the author, and it's really annoying. You have to give a reader complete freedom to feel exactly what they will. Mm. Um, What those things do for me, the contact I have with people in a lot of groups that are sort of excluded, it just feeds my perpetual fascination with other human beings. Mm. I'm just really interested in other people's lives. What it's like what it's like, often these people are outsiders in one way or another. Um, I mean in this room, there are lots of people here who feel outsiders in one way or another, depending on the context. So there's never there's never a we in the outsiders. It's always shifting and changing. But I guess like most writers, I'm fascinated by people who feel outsiders. A because they have an intrinsically interesting experience. But also, importantly, that when you stand in the shoes of someone who is an outsider, and you turn around and look back at everyone else who thinks of themselves as us, it's a really interesting viewpoint from which to describe us.
1: But do you think, I can see that's true in your fiction, definitely, but I'm also interested in is the writer's citizen, you know, so outside, Mm. so you're obviously a good citizen in in terms of, you know, working in prisons and supporting Oxfam and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and do you think a writer has a responsibility, especially somebody like you who has gained fame um, and, and so has a voice and has you, influence? Do you think that's of, part of your job?
2: This is one of those questions where it's really tempting to come up with some massive, bland, generalized comment, isn't it? And tell, say what other writers should do or what anyone should do. I, I really resist any statement of what other people should do. If you have any influence on other people's actions, have it by doing something yourself. Don't sit there and say what other people should do. Go and do it. And if it, if it looks like a good thing to do, other people will do it as well.
1: So do you feel conscious of being an influencer?
2: No. I'm not even conflu- uh, uh, conscious of being Mark Haddon. <laughs> I remember talking to Simon Stevens, he's, a, he's, he's huge in, in Europe, he's not so well known here, he's very, one of the most successful living playwrights, and I said to him, do you, do you ever sort of sit on the toilet at home thinking, I am one of European, Europe's premier playwrights? <laughs> he said, of course I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not even aware of being a writer most of the time, you sort of have to, igno- I certainly have to ignore those 10 million mm. sales of Curious, mm. that would be a really, really mm. unhelpful thought to have sitting at the back of mm. my mind. I sort of feel I have a sort of rather cheap version of a Superman cape. I've got my cheap Superman cape on now, but as soon as I sort of go home, I'll take it off again, and Mm. I'm just me. And it's something peculiarly true of being a writer, actually, because you do have a blank bit of paper every morning. So you always do start from nothing. And I'm Mm. sure there are some writers who do seem to be blessed with the ability to just... Have a Stakhanovite work ethic and just work every day. Hilary Mantel wrote in the Guardian recently about her working day. She's writer's block. What is that? I just write seventeen thousand words every day, <laughs> and every other writer I know is going bloody hell. That woman, how does she do it? I hope she's lying. Most are not like that. Um, it's true. Most are not like that. But you, you always go back to zero yeah. the next day. And if you don't go back to zero, then something's wrong. Mm. If you don't start every day by wondering whether you can do it again. So you're
1: constantly reinventing yourself, aren't you? you Or reinventing your work?
2: You have to balance this grotesque egotism with this kind of surgical self-doubt and try and tread some middle way. Because you you have to embrace your continuing ability to write crap. (laughs) And We all know writers who've got to a certain stage and a certain eminence where they just sometimes crank it out. And I think you have to say, I'm a beginner every morning. I think I am in a perverse way blessed by my dreadful first drafts. I always know it's gonna read very, very badly on paper. And I know that something, hopefully, something slightly magical or special might, if I'm lucky, happened around edit number 20 or 25 Mm. or 30. So I I always know I've got to get through that horrible bit at the beginning every morning.
1: Um, In my day job, I'm actually an editor, and when I I have. When I, a writer starts up again, who's done well, and they start up again, they say, oh my God, this is so awful, I can't believe it. I always say, but you always feel this way. No, I never do. <laughs> you, know, God, you know, you, <laughs> you always do, say, always. And, and then they have to, oh, that's right, I do. And I always get through that again, actually. But you have, um, you talk talked a lot about, you have talked about your wife, to me, being your f- uh, good first editor.
2: It's great, isn't it?
1: It's very nice.
2: And we, and we, st- and we, <laughs> we still love each other, despite yeah. the whole thing. It's like a sort of huge version of do you give driving lessons to your spouse? No! Or will it cause (laughs) cause divorce? What she does, and I often say this to students, you're looking for someone in your life, not who's a good editor in that they have the requisite set of skills or opinions, you need the person who will say something to you about what you've written and you will think, oh yes, That's exactly what that little voice at the back of my head was saying all along. The little voice which was saying, I think we can get away with this passage here, it's sort of okay. And then if you find this special person, they will say, you see this passage here? (laughs) And you go, oh, yes, you're right, it's rubbish, isn't it? Um, The poet Paul Farley was talking about exactly the same thing, the the sense that other people read something and it'll point point up the, the bits that you knew weren't working. And he said, When you start out as a poet, you put your poems in a brown envelope and you shove them in the post box. And halfway between the slot and the bottom of the post box, there's this kind of shaft of light from heaven which illuminates the slightly crap lines (laughs) that you thought didn't matter. And you try to thrust your hand in, but it's now too late, and it will go to the magazine. And you need to find the person in your your life who will illuminate those lines.
1: And still love them. And still love them. So we can open the, the um, event to, to people, um, besides me, who wants to ask questions. And we have mics, undoubtedly. There's a gentleman here in the blue shirt.
3: I wish to go back, if I may, to your curious incident and the 10 million, um, and the young man who could not identify with what I'll call normal human beings mm-hmm. very easily. And I could bring up, please, the name McKinnon, which I'm sure you know very well. The American authorities wanted to extradite him to face criminal offences, or what they thought was criminal offences. This, of course, was fought valiantly by the UK authorities against, and they succeeded. My question is, do you think that if someone even with autism syndrome or whatever excuse for it, commits what anybody else would think was a criminal offence and might be penalised for, should in fact accept that he should be tried, or whatever you want to call it, jury-wise, etc., as a criminal.
1: Okay. I'll and just a minute, before you answer that, I want one more hand up for the next question and we can get the mic over there. I can answer that. Yeah, you go. No, I'll, I'll answer that. I'll no, no, I you want you to. Uh,
2: I'll, I'll, give you th- I'll give you the answer to that. Can uh, we up the mic the to the same answer I please. give when anyone asks me to get involved in a news story, Thank in an organisation which is due with Asperger's or autism, that I know very, very little about the subject. What I did was I created a person who is hopefully believable and self-consistent... <laughs> and who has lots of the habits, quirks and behaviours, belonging to a lot of people I know who would never be labelled having any kind of disability whatsoever. I put him together and I let other people make a diagnosis. It's, it's the fact that he's believable to me that matters, and the fact that he's believable to other people that matters. His only description of himself is he describes himself as a young mathematician with some behavioural issues. And I want to leave it like that because that's quite funny because it's a critique of other people who put labels on people and it's his description as well and it resists labelling. So that case to me is in a way like any other legal case whatsoever. Um, I mean, I might have opinions about it, but they wouldn't be about the diagnosis that he had. It would just be about, it's a legal case. What do you think about this legal case? So mm. my short answer is I'm not an expert, so I wouldn't venture to give an opinion on stage. Mm. Thank you.
1: Thanks. right there two in yeah this is a very quick and simple question you mentioned a blank sheet of paper every yeah. morning, it isn't literally that is it,
2: Sometimes your it technique is. Um, and
1: when you've written it, it by hand your first thought, your first draft does your wife see it in that form?
2: that would be torture for her <laughs>
1: So you you put it on the computer, and then she's allowed to fiddle.
2: OK, what usually happens, I have a lovely room at home in which I write, so like most writers, I therefore leave the house and go to a cafe. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: I write on a computer with some internet-blocking software working, (laughs) so that I'm not tempted to go down the rabbit hole of The Guardian or Twitter. Um, I usually then print it out, and then I'll quite often scribble over that bit of paper, lots of arrows and doodles and everything, and then I'll go back onto the computer again. I wouldn't show it to any other human being until it's at least at draft 20. I mean, I'm ashamed to read it myself in early drafts. I just have to kind of hold my nose and get through that. That's sufficient answer.
1: There's... Right at the back, and there's someone right behind you. Let's have... You first. Thanks.
0: Yeah, uh, I I was... uh, Sorry, are you taking... Yeah. uh, Yeah, I was thinking of your love of Gawain, Mm -hmm. and... um, and the fact that that's a Christmas story, yeah. and that it's not the only Christmas story in there, because there's also the Christmas Carol, which greatly, God blesses everyone, is actually yeah. quoted. And I was thinking, too, about what you were saying about fiction, that you seem not to like fiction that seems to want to move us, in the emotional sense, but to move us in the physical sense. Mm-hmm. So that if Gawain treats Christmas as a period from which I do something, and then I will see you at the next one. We get increasingly into wanting to find events that have only emotional meaning, and that's Dickens. I was just thinking, too, that in in The Pier Falls, that's exactly what I feel about it, that everything is moving,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it, time picks up as you move through the novel. Mm-hmm. And in the end, what's wonderful is when you can move past the pier, yeah. uh, but what is awful is, to, is the people, the one survivors, the only ones who remain in the room, mm. okay, are the ones okay. who have people who won't come for them.
2: Thank you. I feel exactly, that when we talk about, it's, I, it's not that I don't want readers to be moved, it's that the fact that I, want, I do want readers to be moved, um, edified, entertained, whatever. But the less of your own emotion you put into something, the greater space they have to feel whatever they want to feel. And I think you just... To be in a world is to, just to react to it and have emotions, isn't it? it? This world, The world we live in is amazing, isn't it? But it doesn't come preloaded with how we're meant to react. When we see the news, we all react in our own, our own different way. And I want, I want to make a little world which is similar to that. It doesn't have any preloaded emotion to it. But if people suffer in that world, we feel for them. If funny things happen in that world, we can be amused. Often things are very, very ambiguous. Um, yeah, I want it to be a little version of this world.
1: Well, I think you achieved that, definitely. Uh,
2: do you manage to find a balance between writing and reading? Ooh. <laughs> <sighs> well, I don't even find, manage to find a balance with the writing itself. You know, I mean, I, I have weeks on end, in which I find it really hard to write. I'm really lucky in the sense that Curious Incident sold a lot of copies, so I can choose whether or not. I tell you what, it gives me the ability to throw things away. And that is great, because I never have to sit down and produce the next book now and get it finished in 18 months or two years. Because for some people it works, and some people it's a disaster. I never have to do that. That's the upside. The downside is that if I'm trying to write and I don't feel any huge necessity from in here, then I can't do it. I really can't do it. And then it's really hard to know what to do do with your Mm. days because you don't really know that until you sort of knuckle down to it.
1: Mm. Um, I think hunger does drive, well it drives any kind of ambition, doesn't it?
2: And if it's just hunger for getting your next book done, that's never quite enough. I mean, I'm in a a quite odd place at the moment. I was about a third of the way into the novel about a house fire. I really liked it. These came out, the reaction to these stories has been great. And I think one of the reasons is is the fact that I've used plot in a way I've never really used it before. The plots are quite strong and tight. And that's not what I've done in the novel. And I'm just sort of stalled. I love the beginning of this novel, but I'm not sure where it goes now because I haven't got that strong arch structure but I don't have any more ideas for short stories. So I'm just, I'm a bit like a sort of ill-tempered bear at the moment, just (laughs) pacing backwards and forwards in my cage. But I do get get some reading done.
1: We have another question. Anybody want to talk about short stories, (laughs) (laughs) for example? No, okay, fine. I'll answer (laughs) questions about anything. Fine. We're only going to have time for a couple more, actually. So do you want to go just there and then here? Okay, fine, we'll start with you. So we'll pick you up in a second.
0: Hello. Um, What I find really interesting and very relatable is that you're so highly critical about your first drafts. When was it that you were first courageous enough to go and keep on working on it till draft 20, draft 30, and actually put the effort in to become a real writer?
2: I always, I think I secretly always wanted to be a writer. I always say it's a bit, it's not. It's not like wanting to work in a garage or be a dentist or something it's not a career choice. It's a bit it's a bit like being gay. You sort of you you, you you when you're very young you know you're different from everyone else, then you realize why you're different, then you sort of summon your courage and admit to other people why you're different and hope they sort of still remain your friends. It was a bit like that for me. Um, I think it's partly being one of those kids who are always on the edge of the playground who don't feel quite involved. You know those other kids, the one who just swing through life like gazelles across the veld. They look like they're made for life. They don't have to think about anything because they're just at the centre of attention. Then um, we all hate them. Um, and but then, then he the
1: puts th- them in his story. <laughs> <and>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think most people here, if you're interested in books, you are, prob- you are probably the kids on the edge of the playground slightly. Because if you're, if you're so in tune with life what is the point of inventing another little world? It's only when this world is slightly uncomfortable that it becomes a magical phrase once Mm. upon a time, and you can disappear into something else altogether. And I had that very, very strongly. I was always aware that there was another sort of fictional world here, and I kind of wanted to go into it and then wanted to make it as well.
1: I'm going to have one more question, I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, at the back then, fine. And then we'll have to vacate but you can find us in the signing tent.
0: One of the things I like best about your fiction is your ability to take a reader down a highly absurd thought process and that you are very far into it. I'm thinking especially of in A Spot of Bother, the scene in the shower where he's about to use a razor blade to cut off the eczema. How you Is this deliberate to take the reader into these absurd thought processes <laughs> before we turn around and say, no, come on, that's just too weird for
2: anybody? Can you give a shot? Do you know, when a, I often talk to people, particularly about students, about what it means to write realism. And I say, go and sit on the bus and write down some of the conversations you hear <laughs> and then read them back and they are utter rubbish. <laughs> Real life is sort of gibberish, doesn't make any sense. But making a reader some, feel something is real has got almost nothing to do with the content. And it's got everything to do with the structure of individual sentences. And that's why I think editing mm-hmm. is so important. And that's why I go back and back and back, combing and combing and combing to get the knots out. Because if you read a writer and sentence by sentence, you think, I feel completely at home with them. I will. I will hold their hand and let them take Mm -hmm. me anywhere. And one of the most exciting things in reading or writing for me is feeling that utter confidence in a writer's skill. And then they can make me believe in anything Mm -hmm. whatsoever.
1: I agree. Thank you. That, that really beautifully sums it up. Exactly, that's what we want to from fiction, isn't it? So we are heading off to the signing tent, but thank you very much. That was, you've been a great audience. Thank you.
3: More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for EdbookFest.